You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, Hasmicha. I'm here with Yitzchak Kolakowski. Last year, uh, those of you who remember, you can find it on our platform, you could find Yitzchak and I spoke about a very uh, fascinating and important film, I think, in terms of the idea of repentance and making yourself a better human being and recognizing God in the world. I believe it was a year already. Can you believe it's been a year since we we did that uh, we we did that episode? So I came up with an idea uh, yesterday uh, that, considering what I remember from my yeshiva days, that many of the young men would actually take upon themselves a vow of silence. Now, that didn't mean that they didn't utter any words, because, of course, there are words of prayer, there are words of blessing, there are words that need to be uttered, uh, but there was no extraneous speech. And this, of course, kept them uh, in a state and conveying it to us, the importance of as we call Shmir Sadibur, the importance of what words you say and how your words can be powerful. And to tell you it's the truth, you know, I was, I felt, wow, I wish I could do this. This, this makes sense to me. But it made me think that perhaps what we could extol, especially uh, in this time, is the significance of silent films. Now, Silent films, there's a great treasury of silent films available. Many of them are available on YouTube. Many are available on the Internet Archive. Unfortunately, some of the great classics uh, of the silent era are lost. We think of films, Yitzchak, as a Hollywood, uh, movies in Hollywood, now I guess Bollywood together. But in the silent era, uh, we know that the, the, the German expressionists, the Russians, uh, they were many of the pioneers of of the effectiveness of film. Again, eventually, I think it all comes down to the good old U.S. of A. I think the USA flexes its muscles, and ultimately, they are the big giant of in the film industry. The history of it, of how everything wound up in Hollywood, was because 
uh, when Edison invented the moving picture, he thought it was just more of a toy. He didn't really think of it as a major industry, but he, he made a lot of very interesting films, including some, you know, genre films of Frankenstein and, and dinosaurs and cavemen and things and all kinds of interesting little movies that he was involved in producing. But nonetheless, he was doing all of his work in New Jersey. Right. And he was known to be, along with uh, Henry Ford, somewhat of an anti-Semite. And when Jewish filmmakers were interested, producers particularly, were interested in getting into the business and making a business out of it, he said no. He, he refused to work with them. So right. they realized, you know, if you're in New Jersey, you need to pay for lighting. But if you go out to sunny Los Angeles, California, there, it's pretty much sunny all the time. So you don't have to pay for the lights. And so that's why, that's how Hollywood really was created was because the Jews were chased out of the film industry in New Jersey. They had to go somewhere where it was a little bit easier to make movies. And that, that's really the whole history of how Hollywood got started. It wasn't only Jews, but I'm sure a lot of those other people Edison really didn't care much for. And that was really. I think we could even say something more large about even the history of sound films is that because the east coast was sort of the source of so much of the hollywood films many of the films that even were made on the west coast the city that was implied that it was happening was always some sort of east coast city many of the you know the the, the films that we've talked about on this forum uh the early films of spencer tracy betty davis and, and james cagney even though they were being filmed on the west coast they they had enough of stock footage from New York to give you the impression, at least, that it was happening in New York City. There, there, there was, I guess, an understanding, too, that most of the film-going audience were in the East Coast. And therefore, a type of film that was meant to be contemporary was usually set in terms of New York, um, even though it was being filmed on some soundstage uh, somewhere else. So again, the influence of, 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 of the, of New York and Long Island and Jersey, I think, you know, the shadow is, is, is very long. But these early films, of course, wherever they were made, whether they were made in, in Europe or in the United States, sound technology had not developed. And what you had then was, of course, pantomime, films and pantomime, silent films. So many of our students, Yitzhak, uh, and maybe even your friends when you were growing up used to, would be quite dismissive of a film uh, that didn't have sound. And yet we know, both of us, and I think some of our more engaged and knowledgeable listeners will know that uh, many of these silent films are, are are beautifully shot. In fact, as we talked about Singing in the Rain, as a very nice uh, like primer in the problems of going from silent to sound, the silent films had a drama, a power, a beauty that the early sound pictures couldn't replicate. There was so much, again, there's only so much mental energy that you can put into uh, and, and expertise you can put into a film. Many of the early talkies, whether you can see the mic coming down or not, and some of them you can, they sacrificed a lot of the beautiful cinematography, a lot of the uh, the, the the pathos for the gimmick of the sound of the song uh, that was being done. Especially the very early talkies were just 
it, it didn't even feel like a movie because they were just so amazed that you could hear something that it was just people. It was almost almost like watching a play, and the audio, at least the, the prints that we that have come down to us, often isn't very good. Although again, that could just be. No, no, you, no, you're correct. There, there was almost a uh, an excitement that we can now stage plays as film, and there wasn't necessarily the type of inventiveness that had been the hallmark of silent films. The clear difference between the 1931 version of the front page and then His Girl Friday, you know how how much the film industry grew in those ten years. That were nine years, you know, that, it, you know, this, the second one from 1940, that, that's a movie. The first one, it's more like you're watching the play, almost like you would watch it, you know, on Broadway. Really. But, but I, I would, I would suggest, and our listeners could, could, could correct me if I'm wrong, that what was needed was sticking their hands back into some of the methodology and beauty of silent film and, acclimating it to a sound era that's what in a certain way the genre films you know the the monster movies that i love really captured that meaning when you see the universal monster movies the dracula and the frankenstein and then the bride of frankenstein the invisible man you see a clear inspiration from the german expressionist films and of course this is really why sound films became works of art they became works of art when they were able to distill and and push outward the i guess the omnius as we would say the expertise that was developed from from silent films yes silent films in many ways um were unreal there was a certain pantomime mime aspect of it because you know you had you had to be over expressive in order to convey you couldn't have the uh, the title cards constantly being hurled at you in a way that would be distracting to the viewer. So in between the title cards that were essential, there was an, a lot of body movement that I think later generations would find like, what are they doing? Are they playing charades? Like, why, you know, you know why are they doing that? And of course, th- this was necessary because they, they understood, you know, you can't have everything written out. And, and I think that that's why the, you know, many times you'll see in silent films, the credits, the title cards are a very important part of the credits to figure out where we're going to actually, in a way, you know, stop the viewer and show him the words that, that were being said. You know, it's fascinating because you had those two medium. You had the silent film that was pictures without sound, and you had the radio dramas, which were sound without pictures, and both brought you into a world of imagination that a full sound television or film uh, or television show really doesn't have that same quality of you have to use your imagination to fill in the missing pieces the way either a silent film has with the lack of sound or uh, or a radio drama has with the lack of pictures. No, no, that's an interesting point, Yitzhak, that they are. I think I think radio aficionados would, would want to crown radio as the ultimate successor to 
to novels. You know, they it made the most demands from the audience uh, imagining. However, I don't think radio dramas can last as symbols of beauty. You know, there are there are there are scenes, and you can just even look at the stills from some of these lost classics of the silent era, and you can see how 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 powerful they are. Again, like like uh, Da Vinci's uh, Mona Lisa or Michelangelo's uh, paintings, the silent films, because because of their image quality, really in a way I think resonate even deeper than than you know the recordings of a radio film. Oh, you know Orson Welles was a master in both. You know when he he took what you know obviously he was in the sound era of. Film, right, but, but there's he, no question he, about it. Citizen Kane. I know where you're going with this, Yitzhak, and I'm sorry for interrupting you, but I agree with you. He was the Mercury Theater started off, of course, as uh, a radio uh, theater. Uh, and, it, I think, and, it, and it was as beautiful, you know, as a narrative story as a work of fine music. You know, the, the masterful way that Wells was able to he expressed himself equally in picture and in sound without picture. If you listen to the War of the Worlds, you you feel like you're there in, you know... Right, and, well, again, a lot of it is the is the inventiveness of the sound effects. The, 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 he had his pulse, he had his finger on the pulse of society and the idea of using the, the H.G. Wells story and, and, and distilling it as news reports that was the stroke of genius. It was a, a genre that existed, actually. There was another show in the a, a CBS show as well called You Are There, where they presented events from history as news reports. Oh, I remember that. I remember and, that show. And they, well, they did on television as well, but the, the, the radio versions were were quite interesting. Right, 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 right. But again, part of what, you know, the great, the War of the Worlds was that, I don't know how many people were really fooled into it, but it was done. I, don't th- I think they exaggerated it more than, you know, in, in the news, because well, my understanding was more people were listening to, to Edgar Bergen that night than were listening to Orson Welles. Yes, but okay, but again, your point is, is, is well taken. Welles, the genius of Orson Welles, can always be extolled. And we talk about Citizen Kane, why it was the number one film of all time. I think he took some of that that silent film classic imagery and really pushed it so much of it was 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 the camera angles was being able to see things in in ways that were so unique i mean just you know seeing you know uh, you know charles foster kane's nurses and attendees in the bro in the uh reflection of the broken snow globe right there in the beginning of the film uh, that itself, and again, I think really, you know, we're, we're coming a little bit far afield, but I think what we need to say is that Wells knew how to mine the treasures of the silent era. And he knew how, he knew, he knew how to intertwine them. With- he, didn't, he didn't have, he didn't have Netflix. He didn't have a VCR and he was, he was in his twenties. So that means that he saw most, if most of these silent films when he was probably less than nine years old. Well, again, they were probably still available to be screened, but at that time, I don't think they at all, uh, you know, we know that so many of them were not preserved because they were uh, the type of celluloid that they were on uh, was a material that would basically um, 
uh, disintegrate over time. Nitrate, you know. The nitrates that, that, and that's part of the reason why we don't have these films. You know, can we, we want to talk tonight, really, in, in the spirit of silence <laughs> about a couple of films. Now, uh, you know, Yitzchuk, you, you saw a film that you weren't even aware of. Uh, it's called Tkias Kaf. And it seems to be based on probably some Yiddish plays that were popular uh, in the latter part of the 19th and early 20th century. And some Polish Yidin got into it. The same way the Germans and the Russians got into it, there was a movement. Hey, look, we have a thriving uh, Yiddish cultural life. And I don't know exactly, you know, how they, where they got their actors from, but you saw this film right before we started recording. And it is a, uh, it, it, it's quite a Yiddish story about, it's almost a hundred years old from 1924. Why don't you give us a, a quick recap of what the, what the film is and why you think it might be worthwhile for our, uh, our audience during the MA of Chuva <laughs> to perhaps watch this film? I mean, it's, it's a, it's, it's a shtickle of a Musser story. It, Presented mostly, you know, there there are one or two scenes that maybe break some Gidrate sneeze somewhat, but for the most part, it's a story that's a a from story with with uh, with a moral. It's not an anti-religious story as many of these Yiddish plays and Yiddish movies were, although it, it does present both the the positive and the negative in the in the Torah world. But it opens up as something like a Malava Malka, someone singing Elio and Navi. It's a silent film, so you just see. And the titles are not intertitles. They're actually subtitles, at least in the version that I found on YouTube. And they, there's several different names to this film. But it's it's presented that it seems there's a few Hasidim with a Rebbe and a Balmanagin sitting at something, a Kretschma by Malava Malka. There's candles lit. And they're singing, and since he's singing Elio Navi, the Rebbe is going to tell a story about Elio Navi. And then he, he tells this story taking place in Vilna. He said, with the, with the rabbi of Vilna, and you see, it looks like a Hasidusha. And as most of our listeners know, Vilna was the bastion of, of Misnagdus. Again, a lot of it had not only because of the Vilna Gon, but because of many of the other Rabbonim in the community that signed on the Chayrim against the Hasidim. So you're saying that it might not be historical accurate. There were, there were Lubavitch Hasidim in Vilna that we know of, and we know that there was a, a very vibrant Hasidic Chevra in Vilna. Uh, however, clearly the, the, the powers that be were technically against Rebbes and Hasidim. But again, it could be forgiven, especially since yeah. uh, this is a popular entertainment. It's not meant to be historically accurate. Right. So, it's, so it's presenting that, you know, and, and they, they describe Vilna as the, as the Jerusalem of Lithuania. And which was, it, which was, was the way it was called, yes. Yeah, and it's actually very beautifully filmed. That's the thing, going back to this idea of how silent film is art. This is an extremely beautifully filmed movie that definitely looks more visually stunning than I'm thinking of, particularly the, the 1937 Long Island production of Tevya, uh, which I adore that movie. It's a, it's a nice, fun little Yiddish movie, but this, uh, is much more visually stunning. A lot of special effects. Basically, the story is that, that this Rebbe is telling is that in Vilna, Elio Navi came to, um, 
A vart. It was basically a not a. It was a vart. It was a vart that happened before the birth of of, of two children. Two chassidim came to the Rebbe for a bracha that they should have children, and they both one had a son, one had a daughter, and they grew up. And whatever happened was, you know, and, and so and the boy's name was Jacob, and the girl's name was Rachel. So it was Yaakov and Rachel. And the boy is learning in yeshiva, and he's very. So when did they do? When did they do the tekiyas kaf that the, that they would get married? When did that occur? As, as, as soon as again they got for our listeners, tekiyas kaf means tekiyas kaf is a handshake, but which which has a halachic significance as a binding contract between two parties. So this handshake that was given, it was it given took place at the tish after they got the bracha. So years. Before they so in other words, married. they got the bracha from the Rebbe that one would have a boy, one would have a girl, and they believed the bracha, they gave themselves a tkiyaskaf, that they would do whatever they could to bring this boy and girl, these sort of miraculous children in, that would come into the world, they would become husband and wife eventually. Right, and Elijah the prophet is there witnessing that, and he comes in various different forms and different presents himself, and so he comes there, and it seems like the Rebbe is aware the Rebbe is aware of the power of his bracha because Elio Anovi, Elijah, as we call him here in English, is somehow present. And so, and so he's standing there, and, he, and as the two fathers are shaking hands, he places his hand upon their shaking hands as witness to their vow, their sacred vow that they made to each other, that they are going to have their children be married. So this Yaakov, he's learning in yeshiva, and then this Rachel, Jacob is learning in, in the yeshiva, and Rachel comes selling apples. And when he sees her, when they're you know they're both of age, and he gets so uh, his yetsahara excites him so much, and he's confused. He says, "On one hand, I, this is a girl I could marry. What's wrong with me being attracted to her? But on the other hand, it's it's distracting me from my learning." So he has two friends next to him. Who represent the Yetzer Tov and the Yetzer Hara, the, the good inclination, the evil inclination. And one is the evil inclination. And he tries to tell him, you know, to enjoy life and to, you know, be aroused by this fantasy. And he has this vision of Yaakov Avino and Rachel Imeno, of our patriarch and matriarch, how they met. And Rachel, in his dream, the biblical Rachel is holding a lamb and she's a shepherd. And, and then the biblical Jacob comes. And uh, they're about to kiss, as is mentioned in in the scripture, and uh, but they actually don't show the kiss in the movie, which is, I think, so. So, in this sort of fantasy dream sequence, is he playing Jacob, and the girl, the apple seller, is playing Rachel? Yes. Meanwhile, there's a Gvir, a Shmuel Levine, who wants to marry this Rachel, and so he he comes up with this whole scheme because he knows that they're in love with each other. But this Jacob, he goes and he's thinking of leaving the yeshiva, of kind of, we say, going off the derech. He goes to a barber and gets his pay is, uh, cut off. And then he get and changes from, he had a bekesha and a, and a cap, and he changes to a, a nice suit and tie and a fedora hat. And But then he, he was walking along and he sees Rachel. She's playing with some yarn and the ball of yarn falls out of her. She's knitting something. The ball of yarn falls out of her hand down the steps into the street and Jacob picks it up and it's really quite romantic how he and she's like pulling him in, pulling back the string as he brings her the ball of, of yarn back. 
it was symbolic not only of the bond, the mystical bond that tied these two souls together, but also the bond that ties him to his tradition, the bond that tries him to the tradition of his of his ancestors, the one that's the bond of religiosity. Even though he returns the string to her, he doesn't stay with her, right? Well, they actually, they go for a walk together. And what this Shmuel Levine, who is an older man who wants to marry this Rachel, and he's a big veer, he's a, he's a wealthy individual, he actually goes and tells the Rosh Hashiva to go right to Jacob's father and tell him, your son has to come home because he's he's no longer, you know, living like a, a Ben Torah. So they, they send him home, and then they both hear in the news that the other one is getting married. They make a shidduch for for this for Jacob, and he and they actually make there a whole a lechaim a a a and and the rav there he sees he says you know you're going to be bound together forever, and the Elio Navi is very upset at this, and all of a sudden Yaakov's father. Just has bad mazel. Everything goes wrong. He's- so basically, so even though even though the 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 parents of Jacob and Rachel had this incredible mystical experience with the Rebbe, that was forgotten as the children grew up, and people forget the vows. People forget that the 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 deals that they make. People forget the commitments that they make, and it has ramifications not only for them but for their children. So I assume again, just to you know, push this uh, narrative forward that all sorts of troubles beset uh, Jacob and Rachel and their parents and Jacob's parents and Rachel's parents because they have not kept the vow of these two being together. Do the star-crossed lovers finally get together with Elio Novi's help? Yes. I, I mean, that's a spoiler. Yeah. There's so, yeah. a spoiler. Yes. They eventually, yeah, I, I just spoiled it for everyone. So it's not, it's, it's not like, you know, when you go onto the IMDP page, you'll see that people say it's a precursor to Ansky's The Dybbuk, which I think everybody is very familiar with. Uh, there's been so many stagings of The Dybbuk plus various film versions of it in Yiddish and other languages. And of course, The Dybbuk is a very, is a very tragic. Uh, terrible play in terms of uh, in terms of the pain uh, and the suffering. This film doesn't necessarily have uh, the same type of uh, uh, inescapable tragic attitude that the, that is, is in the Dybbuk. And again, let's talk a little bit about this because this has to do with the Murnau film that I want to uh, spend a couple of minutes talking about as well. Uh, once the sound era was here to stay. Uh, some of the Hollywood, whether it was in Hollywood or Long Island or wherever, the people that were involved in filmmaking decided to sort of like edit and change and sandwich sound scenes uh, within the silent ones. And of course, Chaplin did something similar in some of his uh, early in the films of that period, but I think he did it with a sense of artistry. And then he still also did it. In, when he re, when he re, 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 made his re-releases, I know he re-released the uh, the Gold Rush in the 1940s with himself narrating it. Right. So right, but again, it was done with a, with a certain. It wasn't slapdash. I think what, what what happened in a number of releases in the early 30s was they took the basic chaymer, the basic essence of the silent film and they put like a a sound intro a sound uh epilogue 
and inserted sound in a clumsy way. And this is what happened to this film. Uh, I think it was in the 1930s. It was re-released with sound using some of the, again, getting the actors to actually speak. It was remade in 1937, the same year you talked about Teve the Milchaker, but actually as a, as a film as well, a uh, Yiddish film. And it was called, then it was called The Vow. The stories of Elio Anovi have always been very popular in, in, in Chazal. They stand out. And there's no reason, you know, we, we, we know that throughout, especially European Jewish history, uh, these wonder stories abounded. So the idea that Elio Anovi shows up and is the hand of providence and is this sort of glorious mystical figure, I think it, you know, it, it definitely was something that tapped into the Jewish imagination. And again, and this really meant that the films were being catered specifically to a Jewish audience, like many of the later Yiddish films. And again, this is a gem that you discovered. Really, I guess I'm going to take uh, the schluss of pushing you towards your search here. And again, hopefully uh, our our listeners, especially those of the Jewish faith, can enjoy something that is not only a, a glimpse into a hundred years ago of the Yerushalayim of Lita, the Jerusalem of Lithuania, but also really something that taps into uh, some of the uh, eternal stories, the stories, of course, of really that are as old as the Torah itself, of finding the right zivug, finding the right one, and, and there's a lot of quotes from Chazal in, in this in this film. A lot of quotes from the Talmud, whether it's Arboim Yoim Koyim Yitzirus of Vlad that 40 days before before a child is is conceived, the, the, the Zivug, and then also Ezul Gibar Koyvish's Yitzchol is quoted, who is strong, the one who conquers his his passions. And, so clearly, clearly, the the uh, advisors on the film were not just uh, Yiddish Bundistan that were trying to bury a society that had lost its relevance, but were rather, as you're saying, from the knowledge that they had and from the positivity that they put into the characters, it was something that indicated that they were still living in that world. And therefore, perhaps it can be a model for the burgeoning new uh, from film industry that we know has taken off, whether it's in Stissel or whatever it is, uh, or, or beyond, this could be a certain a percusor to that. And it's definitely something that you should check out. Let me talk a little bit now about Murnau's film, because again, Murnau was obviously, uh, you know, eight of his films were lost. He died uh, in his early 30s in a car accident. Um, Murnau was a German expressionist. He came to the United States. He was brought by the Jewish moguls in Hollywood to make films here. And he made a couple of films for Fox. The film that most people know, Yitzchak, is the film, of course, Sunrise. And that is the film, which is, again, the dance of two souls, which, again, is also really about a similar theme to uh, Kiaskaf. This film that I'm talking about is also sort of the other side of the coin, uh, also about an Ottoman Chava, also about a couple that was supposed to be brought together by by destiny. And will they survive? Will the couple actually get through the throes of the first couple of difficult days after their marriage. It sounds very um, prosaic, but it's filmed in such with such beauty, such care. It's called City Girl, and it was filmed on, mostly on location in some of the farm area in Oregon. Charles Farrell is the lead. He plays sort of the Odom, uh, Lem, who is a mama's boy and really a daddy's boy. He's someone who is a, is a good person. But he is really, in a way, ruled by his parents. 
the father uh, who owns a huge farm in Minnesota has sent him on his first act of maturity to sell the wheat uh, of that year, something which I guess the father had done up until now. But now they were sending him on a train to Chicago, where at the market, they would sell the, the wheat, which of course would provide the necessary funds for the whole year. And because of issues in the wheat market, he isn't able to sell the wheat at the price his father has demanded he sell him. The film makes it clear the shots that it has of the father, who is played in uh, in the most severe tones by an actor called David Torrance, who plays uh, Mr. <laughs> Mr. Tustin, and he is a, a sort of a biblical uh, raging figure. Is he an evil man? Clearly, his the, the strict way that he has raised his child, the toughness that he has in terms of surviving, really makes you think that perhaps the cost that is taken for taming the prairie is a severe one. In other words, what Renault really is investigating here is that don't believe that out the city is the seat of like Sodom and Gomorrah and that the purity of heart rests in the ones living outside of the city in the sylvan areas where they're still working the land as if in the primal way before the industrial revolution brought so many of these metropolises into the forefront. Uh, Murnau really investigates and, and and shatters that illusion. He shows that some of these people who have been who have been able to tame the woods and turn them into these farmlands did it with steely discipline that really emanated sometimes from a unmoving, domineering, draconian source. And that is what this father is. The father admonishes seemingly a little girl played by the future Anne Shirley. That wasn't her name in the film. She later became a, a, an adult actress known as Anne Shirley, but originally, of course, um, she was just a, a little child. She was originally known as Dawn O'Day, and she plays this little, this beautiful little girl who incredibly must be the youngest child of this stern patriarch. And there's a number of scenes where he admonishes her for playing with a, a little bouquet of wheat. There's acres and acres of wheat. And she decides as a little girl all alone on the prairie in Minnesota somewhere to play with, with a bouquet of wheat. And she's admonished so sternly by her father for ruining this, that this is money and she has no right to play with it. This is, this is, this is the lifeblood of the family. So. Really, what Murnau is, is saying is that even though, you know, you would say the city uh, is where all the sort of evil gangsterism was going on. Remember, it's Chicago in 1930 that perhaps things on the prairie, things out there, things outside of the city aren't necessarily that much more holy. In fact, they might actually be a holiness that is uh, grotesquely unholy. Because what they've done is they've handicapped their son and their son, uh, although he wants to be a good person and he's, he has his mother's loving kindness, 
uh, he has his father's, the dominance of the father really in a way frustrates him. And this is why when he goes to Chicago, he, uh, he meets the really star of the film. And it's interesting. She could have really, I think, had a wonderful career in Hollywood. The, the star of the film was Mary Duncan. Mary Duncan stopped making films in 1933, three years later. Uh, she was very, obviously very attractive, striking brunette. And uh, she married uh, Stephen Sanford, who owned the Sanford Carpet Company. They moved to Palm Beach, Florida, and it was there that they were sort of this um, this extremely wealthy couple that was hobnobbed with the Kennedys and, and others. So she left films. She didn't make a film afterwards. But during this silent era, people thought that she could be a major, major star. And she definitely shows her acting chops in this film. She is this waitress who basically is in a is in a a a a diner right near Union Station in Chicago. And she's constantly being called upon to serve these grubby men and their needs. Uh, they, some of them are very fresh. They come on to her. It's very hot. And she dreams of escaping. She has, and I think this is Murnau's brilliance. The imagery that represents her is a caged mechanical bird. And I've seen some of these, and I'm sure you could probably find them in, in antique shops where you couldn't afford a real bird, but this is a bird that, you know, you wind up and, and the bird sings and acts basically and moves its head like a real bird inside of a cage. And this, in a way, represents Kate, the waitress, Mary Duncan's part. She's in a mechanized world, a mechanized society that America has produced, the ultimate city, Chicago, the ultimate American city. And she dreams of escaping. Now, when she finds Lem and comes to the diner in order to just get some breakfast or lunch, uh, she's drawn to him. And I don't think any film has ever done a cuter type of rom-com type of cute meeting. It's been replicated hundreds and hundreds of times. But here was Murnau really capturing it. And there's a there's a sweetness. You really like this couple. And you recognize that although they seem to come from opposite worlds, you can see that there is a an actual connection. It's so hard for films when they talk about love at first sight. There's a lot of camera tricks and a lot of ridiculous, you know, ways that most of them lascivious. But here you actually see that she sees within Lem a kindness, a sweetness, a, a sense of pristine honesty that she's been looking for. And she has that honesty as well. She's a tough girl. She has to be tough, but she's not a bitter, angry one yet. Well, when she realizes that Lem is leaving and there's a great scene as he's, he's going to catch the train and they're out looking for each other, somehow, you know, he pops the question. He only, he's only known her for a day, but they decide to get married. When he sends the telegram home, the father realizes what the uh, what has occurred, says, there's no way she's a good girl. A good girl would never marry someone so quickly. She's obviously a gold digger, and he's assuming that his son has been caught up into the demons of of the big city. And this girl is a representative of it, and he is going to tell her off when she comes. There's a beautiful scene 
when they arrive running from where the train station lets them off. And Murnau shows you the great expanse of this, this farm and how they're running and, 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 and wiping the, the dirt off of each other, you know, frolicking on their way to, and she seems to be someone who's an orphan. She doesn't have parents and she's going to be brought into finally have a family. She's going to live as a farm girl and Murnau, although she gets a beautiful, loving embrace from Lem's mother, who is played by Edith York, the father, Mr. Just, Mr. Uh, J.L. Tustine, is abusive to her. There's a shocking scene where he immediately talks to her. First of all, of course, he, he dresses down the son for not getting the price. And even though the son tries to explain to him that the, the the price of wheat has plummeted and he was trying to save whatever he could, you know, he blames him for being rash and not waiting for the price to go back up again. And not and, and also not waiting and getting involved, of course, which is really a metaphor for not waiting and getting involved with this woman. And when he talks to her privately, he tells her that uh how much he realizes that she is just out for this money and that he tells her to go home. He tells her to leave. He tells her she's not welcome. He becomes physically abusive to her. He hits her. And as he has her in his hands, Kate, Mary Duncan reacts with an incredible shot of biting his hand. And it goes really from bad to worse when the harvesters come first of all they are you know these these fellows we've talked about in pre in, in films that were done in the late 50s where the western yahoos were were revealed as being lascivious uh basically grub people who basically all they had was sex on their mind sex and violence we talked about that in films that were made uh these revisionist westerns well murnau was doing that in 1930 uh, these farmhands are all revealed to be a primitive, ugly people. They can't hide their glee at the fact that there's a woman, a beautiful new woman who's come. And when they realize that there's some marital discord going on, because Lem, after Kate tells Lem that her, his father has hurt her, his father has hit her for a minute, he feels he has to go to his father. In Chicago, when someone had started up with her, had been fresh, Lem had been her knight in shining armor, ready to to punish and lash out. But here, where it was his father, Lem felt that there's nothing he could do. And he tries to explain to Kate that he cannot approach his father aggressively. And from there, you see that Kate goes into the room that's been afforded her and locks the door. She won't sleep with him. She won't have him. She tells the father when they have the fight that she'll make a man of him, that that she'll fight for him, something that Lem has to understand himself. So when Lem is sort of exiled from the 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 little bedroom that indicates the the bliss and the physical relationship that he might have with her, he ends up staying with these harvesters up in the up in the annex, up in the attic of this little house, and of course they have a, a fun time needling him and 
submitting him to derision for not being able to even have a, uh, have this woman that he, that he's brought home. And the leader of the farmhands decides he is going to muscle in that he's going to have her. And he becomes this, even a, another snake in Ganeden as he's going to try to worm his way in. She does try to help these farmhands. She goes out with her sister-in-law uh, and, and, and tries to do what she did as a waitress. She goes to feed them as, and, and, and Murnau does a great job, almost like a, almost like a documentarian showing you how wheat is harvested. Well, she goes out in the hot sun and does what she did in Chicago. She becomes the, the purveyor of the food uh, for these hungry men. And, you know, once again, what happens in this dynamic? What happens in this dynamic is that men want to take advantage. The men who come close to her want to take, you know, and, and they take, uh, you know, the, one of the uh, the trinkets that was given to her earlier by Lem is is stolen from her. And this, this becomes a sign that perhaps she's been unfaithful to him because she, she allowed this, this token of their original love relationship to be in the hands of some stranger. And of course, as I said, the leader, whose, whose name is Mac, played by this very large, uh, character actor, Richard Alexander. Again, this might be one of his best film roles because you can see him trying to take advantage and, and he's going to blackmail her because what he's going to do is, you know, they, it turns out that these harvesters who have to bring the wheat in, because remember, Lem has already sold the wheat. He sold it for the, for less than the father wanted, but now all the wheat has to be put into the, uh, into the, in, has to be taken to the granary and put into the containers in order to be picked up by the, the, the people from Chicago. So it has to be brought in. And it turns out because there's a hailstorm coming that he reads about that this, that the wheat needs to be gathered that night. And, um, Mac, Richard, played by Richard Alexander says that he is going to lead a mutiny against them. He's going to say all the harvesters are going to leave. None of that is going to happen. And he, f- he forces Kate to come with him. He says, you're going to have to come with me. And or if not, I'm going to, t- and, and I'm going to say that it's your fault. You're the one who wants to run away with me. And you're the one who told me to ruin the chances of this farm to have, uh, to, to, to continue its existence. So talk about a nightmare. You know, it really is a very, it starts off as this, you know, this pristine picture of, of life. Uh, it was definitely a much more sophisticated and highbrow film than the one I recommended. <laughs> no, no, I, 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 again, I'm not trying to, to, to overwhelm you. I'm trying to say it's, 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 and its power is, is, is incredible considering the fact that there's, you don't hear one spoken word, right? You know, there is, there is a beautiful scene in the beginning as she's coming to the farm, it's like where she brings her, her mechanized bird. And her new, her new sister-in-law and mother have never seen this. And a cat arrives and Murnau has a cat coming. And of course, the cat, a close up of the cat trying to, trying to like sort of like push its paws into this mechanized bird. And that, that image that for five or 10 seconds on the screen is really so much a symbol of what 
this girl is going through. You know, here she is. She is this mechanized bird. She's got, she's surrounded by, you know, this type of danger that's around her. And really what, what, what needs to happen and, and what does happen is that Lem is able to, to develop a, a backbone, a spine. He is able when he realizes that he's going to lose Kate. The father is such a insidious personality that, that when he sees Kate bandaging Mac's hand after it was cut by one of the shredders, he assumes the worst and assumes that they are, uh, they are lovers having a liaison. And he goes and tells his son that this girl that he's brought back is worthless and she's already planning to run away. I think I've told a lot of the story already, but I think, I think the greatness really of both of these films is that you have so much plot, so much story done in a little bit over an hour without any, without one word of dialogue being heard by its listeners. And I think that that is something that we need to take to heart the precious gift of speech that we have, whether it's a morality play, like keeping true to your promises, which is in, I think, I guess, in Tkiaskov, or whether it's really not being taken hostage by an illusory sense of the world, like I think Murnau's City Girl. I think it's about people always believe that, you know, that this, they accept these these canned ideas of, of life without really thinking it through. Whatever your message is, there's something about doing it. There's something about contemplating in silence that I think is, is very positive. You know, the morale says, it's like the great morale of Prague says that when you talk, you can't think. <laughs> he says the two are really um, are opposites to each other. Ultimately, when we're in talk mode, we're not in contemplative mode. We're not in thinking mode. We're not in self-actualization mode. And maybe that itself, I think, is a is a good enough lesson. And not just for Erevim Kipper, uh, maybe for maybe throughout the whole year. So watch your step, everybody, on the way out. Be quiet. There might be some people <laughs> dozing as you're stepping out. Take care, everybody. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. 